0: Welcome to the Reporters Roundtable. I'm your host, Peter Zalewski. This, If you're listening to this podcast, it must be a Wednesday. Because every Wednesday, bring together current and former journalists, talk about some of the biggest headlines that occurred within the last week, and ask the journalists to cut through and help us understand what's exactly going on. Who do I have on this week? Well, first and foremost, we have John Fackler, fresh off of a physical, so he's in a very good mood. Uh, he has an idea, uh, t- got to experience the COVID situation, so he's going to give us a report on that. But how do we know, John? John used to be a reporter over at the South Florida Business Journal where he wrote about white-collar crime and public trade companies. Right now, he does public relations and marketing uh, related to health care and wellness. What's going on, Mr. Fackler, and what did the doctor say? <laughs>
1: well, he said you're uh, a fat slob. You gained 30 pounds in a year. <laughs> That's what the doctor That's- said. Yeah, but you didn't catch the COVID, so you have to push-pull. No, I was, I was uh, hung up inside the house like a shut-in for a, a year. That's what happens. Now i got to well, get out there and exercise and eat good. Well, well, so. John, the good news is um, we are now in summer or uh, we're in the
0: wet season, if you, depending yeah. on how you look at it. That means if you yeah. go out there and you go walking or exercise, you're going to be able to sweat extra because the humidity yeah. level will be so high, and the temperature will be in the 90s. So you've got a lot yeah. to look forward to. Yeah, it's also going to be pitch and rain, so that's going to be wonderful. On <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of a lighter note, who else do we have on the podcast? We have John Groose. John was a journalist for north of 25 years, primarily in the state of Florida, including a gig at the Tampa Tribune. For now, he runs his own publication in a marketing firm called Groose Communications, and he is very active. I doubt he
2: gained 30 pounds during the pandemic. John, how's it going and how's your waistline? <laughs> hey, hey, Peter. Well, for one thing, I don't go to the doctor because I don't want to hear this kind of bad news, okay? <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: I, I saw you were diving again, John. I was looking on social media and I saw all these fantastic photographs. Uh, you took a um, um, uh, 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 fish and coral
2: and a variety of different things. What's the uh, What's the diving like now? Ah, it's fantastic. That's why we live here in Florida, this beautiful environment, uh, beautiful uh, reef, uh, full of life. And, um, yeah, I, that's why I live here, and that's why a lot of us uh, live, work, and play here. Absolutely,
0: absolutely. And then our rotating journalist this week is an editor and a reporter over at The Real Deal down here in Miami. She's been a journalist for north of eight years. That's Catherine Kalergis. How's it going, Catherine?
3: I'm great. How are you
0: doing? Been been doing very well, very well. Double vaccinated and starting to live again. How about you, Catherine? You have your two vaccine shots, or
3: I'm um, vaccinated. yeah. It's funny and, when you and, say double. I I think that you got like two different vaccines.
0: Well, you know, I like I, I think in the vaccines the same way I order a drink when I go into a bar. I always say pour it like a double and charge me like a single. So right, um, yeah, exactly. I am. <laughs> I like the I, I, yeah I I, I always like the double. Definitely like the doubles. So um, what we're going to do for this podcast is um, we're going to look for straight talk in, i.e., salty language, i.e., cursing. It is permissible. We're going to do a number of different segments. First segment is this introduction, and I'm also going to talk about the COVID numbers down here in Florida. We'll take a break, Then I'm going to bring up three stories that I hand-picked and ask all the journalists to go ahead and review and give us their feedback on We'll take a break. We're then going to get into another three stories. Then we'll get into the prediction segment. Well, that's called the Journalists Make a Prediction. And then finally, we'll wrap it up with the comments. And anybody out there who wants to send a comment, please send an email to inquiry@condovultures.com. at condovultures.com, I-M-Q-U-I-R-Y at condovultures.com. And we read those comments uh, during this reporters' roundtable, which airs every Wednesday. So, guys, let's get into the COVID numbers. And I should say this week, uh, the Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, is a basically terminated any emergency order related to COVID. So he, um, I guess, has legislated or declared that the pandemic is over down here. So let me tell you what the numbers say. Right now in Florida, we have 2.25 million confirmed cases, 2.25 million, with 856,900 cases in the Tri-County, South Florida area of Miami-Dade, Broward, Palm Beach County. And that breaks down with 480,400 in Miami-Dade, 235,100 in Broward County, and 141,500 in Palm Beach County. Now, on the death counts, just under 35,400 people have died from COVID, according to the state of Florida. 11,900 have been in South Florida with 6,200 in Miami-Dade, 2,900 in Broward, and 2,800 in Palm Beach County. And finally, hospitalizations, 91,200 people have been ha- hospitalized due to COVID, with 30,400 in South Florida, breaking down with 13,500 in Miami-Dade, 10,100 in Broward, and 6,800 in Palm Beach County. Guys, a lot going on with COVID and um, uh, the CDC and this uh, this hope that there are this thought. That seventy percent of people, uh, adults in the United States, have gotten at least one vaccine shot, according to uh, President Biden. There's a hope and a goal by Fourth of July, uh, symbolically, uh, everybody be able to get together and sort of celebrate the end of the pandemic in the United States. Um, anybody want to offer any comments about the current state of COVID in South Florida, the numbers, the hospitalizations, or the deaths? Okay, hearing none. Um, Guys, let's go ahead and we'll take a commercial break. and the other side break, we're going to get into our first three stories. This is Peter Zalewski of the Condo Vultures podcast. Before I started doing these podcasts, I basically was in the business of being a licensed real estate broker, a contributing um, columnist for the Miami Herald as well as the Miami – a real deal, but also extra witness work in consulting. So if you are looking for an expert witness or if you're looking for consulting services, a straight talk perspective as to what's going on in a particular marketplace, a building, or th- what happened previously for whatever your situation is, whether you are a an attorney, whether you are a institutional fund looking to invest, or whether you're a lender who's trying to come up with some sort of a strategy and approach uh, for your lending committee going forward, I just might be able to help you to get a hold of me. Please uh, reach out to Peter at condovultures.com. That's Peter at condovultures.com. Or give me a call to the office at 305-865-5859, 305-865-5859. Welcome back to the reporters roundtable. I'm Peter Zaluski. We're going to get into our first three stories that I handpicked, and then I asked the journalists to read them and give it. And I'm going to ask them to give us uh, their insight. So for this first story, I want to start off with John Fackler. This is coming from CNBC. John, I want to get your um, uh, your take on it. Headline: Federal Judge Overturns National Eviction Ban. Three key points: A federal judge struck down on Wednesday national eviction moratorium, potentially leaving millions of Americans at risk of losing their homes. Point number two, housing advocates have said that the national ban is necessary to stave off an unprecedented displacement of Americans, which could worsen a coronavirus pandemic just as the country is turning the corner. And point number three, property owners have criticized the policy and say landlords can't afford to continue housing people for free. Mr. Fackler, under um, uh, the current uh, uh, President Biden order, we're looking at, looking at the end of June as to when the moratorium on evictions and foreclosures uh, would expire. According to this court, this judge's ruling, it actually should occur immediately. Although the Department of Justice on behalf of the United States, they're going to ask for a stay while they appeal this ruling.
1: What say you, Mr. Pecker? What say me? Take a look at who the judge is. The federal judge was appointed by uh, Mr. Trump. So it's no surprise, is it? Um I think what's going to happen is Biden and everybody else is going to take a hard look at this. And I don't think this is going to stand. Um, I think this, you know, when you dig into the story, um, I believe she's out of D.C. So this may have to do uh, more of a local play than nationally. I think before this spreads nationally, Biden's going to put the kibosh on it.
0: But, but Mr. Fackler, aren't judges supposed to be apolitical, meaning that they don't lean one way or another? They simply let the law uh, dictate their decision? Come on, come
1: on. Who are you kidding? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You know, one thing I've learned on this podcast, there's two things never to talk about, and that is politics and religion. So I'm staying away from that okay all right fair
0: enough uh captain i want to get you to comment let me let me read uh let let me read a graph uh first and then i'll ask you to respond um this comes from this is a statement from white house spokesperson jen uh saki she says a recent study estimates that there were 1.55 million fewer evictions filed during 2020 than would be expected due to the eviction moratorium so it clearly has had a huge benefit Yes, and I think a lot of people will say that uh, tenants have benefited, but landlords not so much. Um, what's your take on it? Is it time to end this moratorium?
3: I mean, I think that landlords need some kind of relief. Like if, you know, the fact that, that the CDC is, is the is the um, you know, is the one that has issued this moratorium and it's been extended, like there has to be some kind of financial relief for landlords because they have property taxes to pay, they have insurance to pay. So it's like, what happens? I, I just think that even if you continue it, you're, you're, you're just prolonging the problem, and making it worse. But if you lift it and there's no, you know, there's no relief for anybody, then, you know, what is the, what is the real benefit?
0: It's a great point. Very good
1: point. Okay. okay. A very I'll, interesting I'll, go if, I, if I could just jump ahead, in John, real sorry. quick. Uh, so I definitely uh, agree. And, um, I think there should be relief for both sides, you know, for the tenant as well as the landlord, and I think that should be hammered out somehow. Which is, you know, fair, fair. Okay, Make,
0: makes sense. Uh, story number two, Jean, let's, let's go to you. This is coming out of the real deal nationally, coming out nationally. Headline, home values are off, but just try getting a line of credit. Uh, subhead banks pull back on HELOCs and air quotes despite booming Market. John, I'll read you the first couple graphs, and I'll ask you to comment. Remember the financial crisis that banks do. Lenders are being stingy about granting home equity lines of credit, even as home values have soared, the Wall Street Journal reported. Uh, blame the pandemic in memories of the late 2000s when millions of homes went into foreclosure. Citibank stopped accepting new applications for home equity lines of credit, or HELOCs, on March 3rd because of, in air quotes, market conditions according to the Wall Street Journal. J.P. Morgan Chase and Wells Fargo halted HELOCs a year ago on the U.S. economy shutdown for COVID. Wells Fargo cited, air quotes, market risks and prudent balance sheet management. John, are the banks uh, being overly cautious? I thought the housing prices are going up. Why uh, is providing a HELOC such a risky uh, venture for a lender?
2: Yeah, well, well, home prices are are going up because of market distortions, and this is this is not a normal market, and so it makes sense that banks would be cautious. Because I mean, the the rate of home appreciation now is is. Is ridiculously high and it's and it's climbing at a rate that's unsustainable. And the banks know this, and they you know they they remember the last downturn when home price appreciation you know skyrocketed and there were predictions that that you know this would continue forever. And of course uh we had the uh housing bust so they they remember that and um they're likely thinking like you know being cautious as bankers should be cautious in evaluating the risks that the housing market is overheating and um it makes sense that they should be pulling back on on these kinds of loans and i i have to add too that like you know from what i understand uh, appraisers are having a hard time keeping up with these rising home values, and so, you know, how do you appraise a home when, you know, it's going up at a, you know, such a fast clip, you know? So, it it seems to me that that they're having some issues there as well. Got
0: it, got it, got it. Mr. me let me read a graph, and then I want you to comment. It says, unlike cash out refinancing, which amends an original mortgage loan, HELOCs constitute a second mortgage, payable only after the first mortgage is satisfied. If enough equity is left over, lines of credit are also different from home equity loans in which a single chunk of cash is barreled against the home's value. Mr. Fackler, um, I remember 12 years ago or so, maybe 14 years ago when the market was peaking and HELOCs were everywhere. And then all of a sudden uh, they got turned off. Uh, the spigot for HELOCs or or home equity lines got shut down. And it was shortly thereafter that we ran into the housing crisis because once the financing disappeared, the people who were jammed up, they no longer had a way out to basically gain more oxygen so they could sort of keep the hustle running. Um, Is it any different this time simply because there's so little inventory on the market? And uh, what, what would you say based on your experience 12 to 14 years ago? We are dealing with a rising real estate market as well as the availability of HELOCs that suddenly
1: disappeared overnight. Well, without going into too much details about my personal life, um, (laughs) I could could tell you when I got my HELOC back in the day, I was a point over prime, and um, it was very welcome at the time. Of course, when I got jammed up, it wasn't so welcome. Um, What I found interesting about this story is that, Listen, banks are doing, you know, I agree with John, banks are doing what they should be doing. They're covering their ass. But I'm I'm more curious after reading the story about how that, the fact that there's fewer HELOCs being given out, how that will affect the buyer as far as wanting to go ahead and buy. You know, back in the day it was, you know, let's, let's get this thing going and, you know, there'll be a 2nd you there'll be a HELOC, you know, we'll be able to cash out. If they're not giving those out now, what, what's the incentive to buy? Don't you think that's going to curtail the motivation for buyers? I, I mean, that's well, just the first thing I thought about. And, and John, just, just to clarify, and then, and then maybe Jean could
0: comment, just to clarify. So what you're talking about is last time people would buy a place, the prices would appreciate they would then yep. get a call from a lender saying, hey, you want a HELOC because your place has gone up so much, you have so much equity. So people would take out this second mortgage, i.e. HELOC. What would they do with it then? Well, they would go on a trip, uh, maybe a cruise. They'd put in a swimming pool. Or they would put their money down on a pre-construction condo, and they figured, what the hell? They can only make more money if they throw more into the kitty. Um, is that what hey. you're referring to?
1: Yeah, that's definitely a big part of it. Absolutely. So I don't see there any, you know, that's going to curtail investing, real estate investments going forward. Um, But also just in general, I mean, as far as if I know that HELOC is not there, I think a lot of people are unaware of this. A lot of people who are buying now, uh, if I'm a a buyer and I'm looking to get in on the market, you know, if I know that there's not a HELOC out there, I'm going to say to myself, well, you know, I'm not too sure that this is a great move right now until the banks start to loosen up a little bit.
0: John, what do you say is the disappearance of the HELOC Is that going to lead to a slowdown in investor properties, not where somebody lives, but a second or a third
2: home? Well, well it may, it may slow renovations and, and, and things of that nature. I'm, I'm more concerned about what the bankers really think. Um, mm-hmm. you know, this, this is not a, this is just not a good sign, you know? And, um, I just feel I just feel like there's a sense of foreboding, and um, there, uh, I, I mean I don't know I don't know what it is because it, you know on the face of it it would make sense that lenders. Um, would would issue more HELOCs in a time of rising values i mean this is after all exactly. you know if if the market is if the market was really healthy and and it was growing at a great steady pace and the economy was firing on all cylinders and everything these guys would be making a bunch of HELOC loans but the fact that they'd like pull back like is actually a little bit worrisome and um you know uh I don't know. I, I just get a sense that um, you know, maybe all is not right with with what's going on. Um so yeah, I, I think that's part of it. Great great,
0: there. Po- yep. great great point, guys. And I would point out to the audience, don't listen to what your realtor says, don't listen to what the developer says, don't listen to what's written. Watch what the banks do. If the banks turn off the spigot, the market has a way of slowing down dramatically. So That's based on my experience. So uh, story number three, Captain. we're going to go to you. This is coming out of Miami Today, which a long, long, long time ago I I was a reporter for. When I first got to Miami, I worked for Miami Today, way back in the early 90s. So um, here's what we got. Miami International Airport gives 63 retail tenants another break. And here we go, first couple graphs. A year-old program... Uh, For giving rent and other payments by shops, restaurants, luggage wrappers, and car rental companies at Miami International Airport will continue past mid-2021 as businesses remain far below pre-pandemic levels. Army Day commissioners last week extended the program for a fourth time for 63 Miami International Airport tenants, one fewer than the previous – one fewer than they approved – to still receive, free, uh, to, uh, receive uh, rent waivers in December. If every company takes advantage through the program's new July 31 deadline, the airport will have forgiven another $22.5 million, bringing the total amount waived at the airport to close to $130 million of rent revenue. Catherine, I thought uh, Florida was the destination because the rest of the country shut down and everybody's coming to Florida. What's happening? Are they driving, or is this some sort of uh, political spoils uh, program where those who have lobbied to get into Miami International Airport are basically getting a free ride?
3: I think that, I think that air travel is still low. Um, like, if you talk to, like, um, owners of, like, airport hotels, um, just, like, you know, in that area, like, the, the, the number of people traveling is still low. I don't know what it what it has been like for the first quarter of this year i I would imagine that there's some, but I don't think that that there's like anywhere near enough. Um, I also think it's kind of interesting that they have done that, that this is now the fourth time that they're doing this it's a, It's a lot of money, one hundred and thirty million um, but the story says that they're self funding it. did you see that or self financing the yes. um, yeah, which I mean I wonder like if they're going to renegotiate eventually renegotiate like the terms of these leases like change the the rates or i don't know do something because like at what point when will air travel return you know will it be next year i don't know
0: right right um jean let let me read you a couple graphs and i want to get you to comment um in the story it says um, tenants still have to pay the county about 15% of their gross revenues. Passenger flows at Miami International Airport between March and December of 2020 were 72% lower than during the same uh, period in 2019. As nearly 28 million fewer travelers arrived and departed from the hub. Gross revenues for non-airline tenants fell in proportion over the same period from $779 million to $227 million, a 72% dip. Sean, what I'm wondering is, um, Miami International Airport is a government entity, therefore we're able to see their books. Do you think this reflects what's going on in the hotels and other tourist-related types of industries that are maybe privately held or publicly traded but so large we can't basically just figure it out, what's going on at each particular hotel or so on and so forth? So, so I guess my question is, do you think MIA is simply a canary in a coal mine for what's really going on in the hospitality industry rather than the news stories we're reading about how great uh, tourism is in South Florida?
2: Well well I think I think the airport as a landlord is doing what every retail landlord is doing which is like cutting some slack to to their tenants that have suffered through the pandemic I mean um I mean I think a lot of uh, uh privately held landlords um have had to renegotiate or or, or, or at least forgive some of the rent uh, from from their tenants, or, or you know, or lose them and have empty space. You know, no one, no one wants to have empty space. I mean, what's the altern That's the alternative, right? Is to kick them out. Um, I, I don't think that's reasonable. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, <laughs> you know, airport. Like, uh, you know, airport concessions have been like a, uh, you know, a lucrative uh, plum, sometimes political plum for, um, you know, uh, people who are well-connected. And, um, you know, it's been easy money. I mean, like, uh, you know, if you've ever consumed a sandwich at the airport... You can't get one for less less than fifteen twenty bucks. I mean, and it's a bad sandwich too. So, <laughs> right? Yeah. So you know the airport the airport's been easy money. You know for these people, so it's kind of hard to feel sorry for them, but. At the same time, you know, the airport's having to do what every retail landlord has had to do, which is cut the tenants some slack or face an empty storefront. And, you know, I I think there will be a travel rebound. I mean, it's happening on the leisure front. Um, there's, there's you know, the corporate travel business has been real slow to recover. But, you know, once, once we get more vaccines, uh, more shots in arms, I think like already the traffic through the airport i think has been growing steadily and so you know we'll see a return to that and you know the airport's gonna have to figure out how to claw back some of that lost money but yeah uh it's 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 an indicator of the retail scene and uh perhaps you know changing retail landscape great point great point
0: um okay guys so, uh, we'll go ahead we'll take a commercial break on the other side of the break We're going to talk about a proposed tax hike that could impact real estate bigly, as our former president, Donald Trump, used to say. We're also going to talk about a mansion that at one time LeBron James owned. He sold it, and now the person who bought it from him sold it for less than they originally paid. And we're also going to talk about uh, downtown Miami. They're at it again. They're going to try to change Flagler Street, and that will be the cure to bring everybody back to downtown Miami. So we'll get into those three stories soon on the other side of the break. This is Peter Zaluski of the Condo Vultures Podcast. Back in 1995, I got my real estate license, but I didn't practice for a number of years simply because I was writing about real estate as a journalist. 2006, I broke out and I launched a company called Condo Vultures. The idea was to try to use information, uh, data, and know-how to try to get the best deals on behalf of buyers. So, if you are a buyer and you're looking for a deal, you're looking to try to understand the condo market in the Tri-County, South Florida area, myself or my team are here to help you to get a hold of us. Please call us at 305-865-5859, 305-865-5859, or visit our website, condovulturesrealty.com. If you're enjoying the Condo Vultures podcast and you want more information, but this information in the written word as well as charts, why not sign up for the software distress market intelligence report? To do so, go to condovulturesrealty.com. Slightly below the main banner and logo, you will see a sign-up box. It's called the South Florida Distrust Market Intelligence Report. Sign up. Simply enter your email address, hit subscribe, and lo and behold, every week you'll be sent a newsletter giving you the latest updates on what's going on in the distress market in South Florida. Welcome back to the Reporter's Roundtable. I'm Peter Zalewski. Now we're going to talk about our next three stories. I want to start off with John on this one. John, this is coming from Watch. the headline. Biden's proposed tax hikes could be, a, in air quotes, a double-edged sword for real estate. What homeowners and investors need to know: some have two of Biden's proposed tax changes could cause Americans to see reduced returns on certain property sales. And first couple of graphs, uh, Jean. As a follow-up to his $2.3 uh, trillion infrastructure pr- package, President Joe Biden has rolled out a $1.8 trillion plan to address other priorities, including education and childcare. care. To pay for the plan, the White House has proposed increasing taxes on wealthy Americans, describing its tax reform package as one that rewards work, not wealth. And um, they're the, continuing on, the focus on wealthier Americans means that households will not be directly affected by the proposed changes. Some have speculated that this will hit middle-class home sellers who sell home in an expensive market and they have more than a million dollars of capital gains from real estate, but this is very rare, said Taylor Marr, a senior economist at Real Estate Brokers Redfin. Even in markets where home prices are over a million dollars, most of that is still serviced by debt, not all by equity. John, um, help us understand what exactly will this law do, and how is it going to impact real estate? At least your reading of it, and obviously it's not yet law; it's proposed, and everything it's up for negotiation until the final signature is cast.
2: Yeah, well, the huge, huge deal is the elimination of the 1031 exchange, uh, and that is a huge deal for commercial real estate. Um, so, under the 1031 exchange, you can. Um, Let's say you own a warehouse uh, in Ohio and you want to move your business to Florida or you want to move to Florida. You sell your warehouse in Ohio and you buy a similar warehouse in Florida. You can defer the capital gains on the sale of the property in Ohio. So um, you're and then if you if you pass away or die, then uh, your heirs get a step up in basis and you know, you never, you never end up paying taxes on, on, on the, on the exchange. So um, this is a huge deal for commercial real estate because in Florida um, there are tons of 1031 exchange deals um, because we get a lot of transplants from up North. They move their business down here and they get to defer capital gains taxes. And the elimination of that would really impact commercial real estate investment sales in Florida and that that is really the biggest um, impact on on uh, real estate from this proposal, uh, this Biden proposal. So, I, you know, you need to really keep your eye on that. Um, it's going to really affect. If it, if it does pass, it's going to have a serious implications on Florida commercial real estate. Um, and I think I don't think like we can, we can appreciate the amount of business that's done with these 1031 exchanges. There are there are companies here and consultants. That's all they do. 1031 exchanges. That's what they specialize in. And um, you know, it's um, it's a it's a huge business in Florida, and um, it could really really impact the states. No, no,
0: no, uh, Catherine. Let me read your graph and I'll ask you a comment. Today's housing market is defined by strong demand, driven mainly by millennials and low interest rates, and low supply as a result of decades of underbuilding. Home prices are rising at a record pace. Consequently, increasing the likelihood that a homeowner who bought their home years ago could see a significant capital gain should they sell. Catherine, are we going to lock people in their homes because of tax? Uh, liability could be so great under a proposed tax hike that people simply can't afford to sell uh, because the taxes will simply be so grand due to the run-up in prices that we've experienced uh, during the pandemic?
3: I don't think that would, I don't know that that would affect the majority of people, um, to be honest with you. I just, I don't know. I just, I I have to say I was prepared for what what Jean was going to say, because I just think that that is huge. I have to say the 1031 exchange thing is really like such a big deal. But when it comes to this, um, I don't know. I, I kind of agree with what, what the person quoted um, who was it earlier who said that, you know, most people have, are, are paying back loans. You know, they, they, it's not, they're not actually, at the end of the day, they're not actually making that much. Um, so, I mean, outside of like a market like South Florida where, Everything has just gotten so expensive. I wonder if it would really have that big of an impact on like most sellers.
0: Interesting, uh, Catherine. Have any of your sources have you been reporting out stories? Any sources made any reference to the 1031 exchange? Now, granted, it's early. It's um, you know, nothing has been uh, debated, nothing has been passed, nothing has been signed thus far. Right. But anybody anybody expressing any concern or fear or even optimism about it?
3: Well, you know who I talk to, so there's no optimism about it. <laughs> um, no, I, most people don't are not a fan of it because it's it's really like such a unique tax break. I think like you can just you can just continue rolling it over, um, which which is, you know, I mean the the savings are huge. Which is not to say like whether you agree with it or disagree with it. I just think like John said, it's it's going to have a huge impact if it if it were to pass.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Um, I guess we'll have to watch and see what happens. Uh, Story number five, we're going to go to Catherine because she wrote it. It appeared in The Real Deal. Here's the headline. Former Coconut Grove Mansion of LeBron James, who is a uh, thing you don't know. He's an all-star basketball player with the Los Angeles Lakers, and he spent a stint down here in Miami where we won two championships, uh, went four times, should have won three, but we only won two. Um, that's for another conversation. Uh, so former Coconut Grove Mansion of LeBron James sells for thirteen million dollars. Aero Airways president Jeff Connery purchased the waterfront home. Here we go, Catherine. I'm gonna read the first couple graphs and then you can provide any kind of feedback. Feedback. LeBron James former Miami Mansion has a new owner. Timo Kipps uh, Timo Kipps sold the waterfront Coconut Grove home at 3590 Crystal View Court to Jeff Connery, president of Charter Airline I Aero Airways. For $12.8 million, Kip and his now ex-wife, Natalia, paid $13.4 million for the six-bedroom home with 13,930 square feet in 2015. Captain, what can you tell us about a gentleman who paid thirteen point four in 2015? The market is on fire, and he let it go for twelve point eight. Was this a distressed sell because of a divorce? Or is this a distressed sell? Because simply there's no buyers for this type of product. What, what, what can you tell us? Not ask me to comment, but just anything you can fill in. And then I'll ask Mr. Fackler to provide his uh, um, uh, critical eye opinion about it.
3: <laughs> I, I think that maybe, maybe he overpaid. Or maybe, <laughs> like you said, I mean, he did go through a divorce. I, I have been looking through the, the filings. I don't know if everything was blocked off. So I don't know if it was, you know, a distressed deal um but 2015 i feel like values were high right yep so he may have he may have overpaid at least it is interesting because lebron james paid i think nine million so he was kind of he was kind of in line it seemed like
0: yep 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 um mr fackler this property is located in coconut grove it's directly on the water um it's at the end of the street uh there is no, it's not gated though it's not a gated community so basically when i go walking through coconut grove i wander down there sometimes i take a look at it uh that type of thing or i point it out to some of the people who are maybe visiting this is where
1: lebron yeah lives. i've seen this yeah
0: yeah yeah exactly you, you you've even seen it um yeah. wh- what do you make of that this guy dumps it for less money than when he paid back in 2015 i thought we we're in a, uh, a, a a run-up in the housing market where there's not enough supply, how the hell could he sell this for a thing for a loss?
1: Well, first off, you know, this seems to be part of a trend. We've talked about this in previous podcasts where, you know, a lot of the celebrity buyers uh, have sold for loss. This is just another one. I mean, I can, you know, I can't name them right now, but if we go back to the podcast, there's about at least three or four of them where that's happened. Um, now, like I said I did see the property and you know from the street it didn't impress me too much it was at the end of the street nice um and I'm sure it's a beautiful property once you go in the gate but you know it was like I mean you could throw a, a baseball across the street and you know you're hitting you could break the win- your neighbor's window i mean i just i I just remember not being impressed by it at the time so you know that being said um I don't know i mean i I, I think it's a a trend. I mean, I think we're going to start seeing that these properties, maybe 10, I don't know if you, where you would cut it off at ten million plus, uh, are just um, going to take a loss because of the uh, the current market. Um, so, and what was the other part of your question? No, no, no. I think I think you
0: I think you answered it. All right, John, we're we're going to stick with you for story number six. This is coming out of the Miami Herald. Let me just sort of preface this by saying Flagler Street is the grand avenue, if you will, of Miami. Uh, Flagler and Miami were basically the main intersection. That's the meridian where all addresses are basically determined from in the city of Miami and effectively Dade County. So Flagler has always been like the address. Well, at one time it had been the address. In recent years, uh, you know, 30-plus years, it's basically just been run down, beat up. It closes down at 5 o'clock. There's been some initiatives to try to put some money into attracting new tenants. An investor has come in and bought quite a bit of the storefronts and the office buildings in and around there. So that's sort of the, um, you know, that's that's a little bit of background. Before I get into the story, John, now I'm going to ask you to comment. So here we go, Miami Herald. After years and a false start, the makeover of downtown Miami's Main Street has begun. A long-stalled $27 million makeover of Flagler Street finally kicked off this week, marking the first days of an estimated two-and-a-half years of construction intended to eventually attract businesses, locals, and tourists to the struggling center of downtown Miami. Contractors hired to completely rebuild the historic downtown street from Biscayne Boulevard to the Miami-Dade County Courthouse, closed off the easternmost two blocks in recent days. The new streetscape, which includes replacing age utility lines, upgrading uh, drainage, Topping underground improvements with a sleek, curbless street covered in concrete pavers is designed to encourage street festivals. John, what, what, what do you make of this attempt to try to work on the uh, the streetscape, and will that yeah. bring additional people to downtown Miami? And what do you make of the fact that many of these businesses are either closed or struggling, and now they've got two-and-a-half years of construction,
1: pounding, dust, pigeons? Uh, what do <laughs> you, Mr. Packler? I'd be getting the hell out of there if I was those stores, uh, and I'll tell you why. Uh, two and a half years. Look, this is Miami. You're talking about five years minimum for them to uh, buy time to finish construction. Maybe longer. Maybe ten years. I mean, I, you know how construction how slow it goes in Miami. It's ridiculous. I mean, the work they were doing on Flagler over here by me lasted almost ten years. So yep. yeah, I that that's a uh, you know wishful thinking. I also don't know if this is even going to get off the ground. How many times have they started this project in the past? This has been, you know, a project long in the making, many years ago. Um, and so now, once again, they're doing it again. And you're right. I mean, you know, with, with COVID and everything else, the businesses are struggling. Now they're going to put up with, like I said, probably five years of construction. Um, it's going to put these, uh, these uh, retail establishments out of business if they don't get the hell out of Dodge first. Uh,
0: Jean, I'll read you something that I want you to comment. In the article, it says, plans to redo Flagler have been discussed for a decade. After poorly executed, 2004 makeover failed to revive the street. Another streetscape plan flailed in 2017 after business owners complained to the previous contractor, F.H. Passion, understaffed the job and worked too slowly. The city fired the firm. Those with a stake in Flagler Street success hope this time will be different as a new contractor begins work on a streetscape designed uh, and paid for by prominent landowner Moshimana and drawn up by Ziskovich Architects. A mix of taxes from the city and county, parking fees, and bond dollars are funding the construction. Property owners are also taxing themselves to help pay for the project. Sean, from a business perspective, um, what do you make of this?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, you have to look at the track record of these kinds of urban, you know, infrastructure investments in other cities around the state to see, like, you know, how well they've worked. I mean, you know, they, they've really had a mixed um, you know mixed results i mean uh you know there there are parts of tampa for example and st petersburg uh some some areas have have like uh, rebounded and have had some revitalization while other, you know, downtown revivals sort of fell flat and, and you have to look at like what made them successful and what didn't make them successful. And I mean, it's a really a mixed track record. And I think just, you know, doing a streetscape is not, is not, you know, in and of itself, um, gonna going to revitalize the area. I mean, the, the you know, the fact of the matter is, is that development's downtown. And I, you know, I like downtown, but I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that development has bypassed downtown. It's crossed the bridge into Brickell. And that's, that's, that's the hot area now. And I, I just think like, you know, um, developers have bypassed, um, have bypassed downtown. And I'm not quite sure that like, you know, two and a half years of streetscaping improvements is going to you know, all of a sudden we bring everybody back. And for those that are there now, boy, I, I, am like, John, I feel sorry for you guys. I mean, this is just a, it's going to be like a war zone down there. So uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be very painful and um, yeah, may, maybe someone can make money in a few years. I, I have no idea, but it's going to be tough. Yeah. Right. And, and as for the businesses,
0: how many are she left according to the article, out of the 134 businesses that fronted Flagler Street pre pandemic, 72 have closed. Only 62 remain open. Kind of makes you wonder why not take the, the streetscape money and give it to these existing businesses to stay afloat? So, but um, that's my point. Okay, guys, we'll take a commercial break. On the other side of the break, we're going to get into the prediction phase. After one year hiatus due to the COVID 19 pandemic, we're bringing back the condo correction tours. I'm Peter Zalewski. The host of this podcast. I'm also the one who will be leading these tours. These are three-hour tours where we go to a particular neighborhood, we walk the neighborhood, we talk about market conditions, we look and talk about buildings, we also talk about what's going on in those particular buildings. Everyone who attends the tour, uh, they're given a handout talking about the, what's the current state of that particular market from a buyer as well as a seller perspective. It's real heavy on the information in terms of the handout, but it's also really uh, interesting and insightful based on the stories behind the buildings and how they are performing. So I encourage you if you're in the market for a condominium if you're trying to work to get listings of the condominium this is probably a tour that you want to uh, take it's straight talk much like our podcast and chances are you're going to enjoy it and you're probably going to want to attend all of the tours going forward to get a schedule of our upcoming tours please go to condovultures.eventbrite.com again condovultures.eventbrite.com welcome back to the reporters roundtable i'm peter zaluski this is the segment where i ask the, the journalists to go ahead and make a prediction Mr. Fackler, what do you think is coming down the pipe? Give us your best guesstimate as to what the listener should watch for in the days and
1: weeks and months ahead. I heard something very interesting today from my Uber driver who was taking me out uh, the <laughs> And, you okay. know, they're always, a good, they're always a good source of information. So the guy told me his wife works for Celebrity Cruises, and um, he was all, you know, geeked up. This was actually his first Uber drive in a year. So you know he's all very talkative, and he's telling me that. And I said, Yeah, I agree. That says, Look, I said, looks like July or whatever. She'll be, you know, doing very well. She goes, No. He goes, that it. She's talking. She's talking about June. I says, What do you mean June? That's. She goes. He goes. Apparently, Celebrity, which I don't know if it's publicly traded like the others. Uh, perhaps they are. But, uh, yeah, it's a
0: sister. But, it's a sister cruise line of one of the publicly traded uh, companies. Yes.
1: Okay. So, apparently, what they're doing is they're shooting for June for the local Caribbean routes rather than going to Europe. And I said, yeah, but I said the CDC, I thought they had some sort of regulation for July. So, and he shook his head like he knew something. And I said, well, listen, if they're going to go ahead and uh, start booking these, um, these routes, the local routes here in the Caribbean in June... My prediction is that everybody else is going to jump in, too, whether the CDC tells them to do it or not. I think you're going to start seeing something, some sort of movement uh, where the major cruise lines start uh, uh, re-upping their uh, bookings for the local Caribbean route routes at the very least.
0: So, um, for what it's worth, Celebrity is part of World Caribbean. So it falls under the umbrella of World Caribbean. Um, I don't know if anybody knows anything about it, but, John, I don't think you can run cruises yet out of the United States. I think what some of these companies were looking at doing was running them out of yeah. Europe. So they wouldn't be leaving the United States because of the CDC order, but they were actually going to be coming out of uh, running in Europe. That's what I had read, but I'm not oh, okay. expert in it. Um, yeah, so, I think, so, but they – I'm sorry. Go ahead. Sorry.
3: No, I was going to say I think the earliest that they can, um, they can start operating in the U.S. is mid-July.
1: Yeah, C D C that's what I thought. That's why I was shocked when this guy, you know, told me this. I said, You sure it's true? He said, well they're gonna they're gonna aren't
2: they gonna run people to the Bahamas? Um uh and they they were talking about increasing flights to the Bahamas and having people leave from there because it's gonna be much oh, more relaxed rules there. That would make
1: sense. Oh that would great make Great point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So so, so Mr. See. Peckler
0: then what, what is your prediction? It was a good it was Not a good a backstory, but what's the prediction? Yeah.
1: Well, the prediction is that the other uh, the other cruise lines will follow suit. Um, they're going to find a way to get their bookings up, uh, even if it means, like uh, like John said, that, uh, having it done out of the Bahamas. So you're going to see not just Celebrity, but you're going to see all the other cruise lines uh, follow suit in June, which is very soon. Okay. All right. Um, John, what uh, what say you?
2: What do you see coming down the pipe? Um, So my prediction is that um, the Florida legislature is going to convene in special session to approve the governor's deal with the Seminole uh, Indian tribe uh, to expand uh, their casino. And I think this is extremely good news um, for, uh, in particular, for Southeast Florida with the Seminole casino here um and they they are actually going to plan a big expansion they're going to add three facilities to the Hard Rock casino in Hollywood and um that that's just part of the deal um and the state is going to be getting like um something like um, you know i mean 2.5 i was reading 2.5 billion dollars within 5 years i mean i don't think the florida legislature is going to uh turn its nose up at that and i think um Desantis, which who recently uh, put the deal together with the Seminoles, um, his his deal is going to get approved, and uh, we're going to get a big expansion of the of the casino, the Hard Rock Casino in Hollywood, which which would be really good news for us. So, uh, that's my prediction.
0: And John, it would also provi- uh, allow sports gambling, correct?
2: That's right. So it's going to expand. Uh, They're going to be able to offer more, more, more betting options. So, I mean, you know, I think I think the um, the opposition to gambling in Florida is slowly crumbling away. I mean, uh, we we do have a lot still have a a Republican dominated legislature in Tallahassee. But I think I think the money is going to be, um, you know, it's going to be is going to be too much of a temptation, especially with sort of the, um, the budgets uh, impacted by COVID. And I, I, I think the deal is going to get done. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Um,
0: Catherine, what, what, what about you? What, uh, what's your prediction?
3: Um, I think that we're in a little bit of a restaurant bubble. Um, I'm just hearing about a lot of like more like New York restaurant groups expanding down here. um, high price deals a lot of like you know money being thrown around and i just feel like you know at some point something's gotta give
0: so so catherine you're saying these new york or these out-of-town restaurateurs are coming here they're setting up shop um at such a uh what at such a level that there's simply going to be too many of them or
3: yeah yeah and i think the prices are getting they're like the rents are getting too high um, I just wonder if it's if it's sustainable, if it's you know, if it's gonna last.
0: Huh. Oh, well, Especially going into watch. the summer, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well that that's gonna be interesting to watch. I think we talked about it on on a previous podcast. A friend of mine went to a New York um, style restaurant that opened up South of Fifth, ordered an uh, I was on a date, ordered an eggplant Parmesan, no a chicken parmesan, which I think it cost him like sixty three dollars. So he would tell you that some of these prices are a little bit too high because they got to cover their high rent rates. So I uh, heard that that's <laughs> a
3: big chicken parmesan, though.
0: Okay, well, yeah. This makes me hungry. <laughs> 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 hey, actually, you need to go on a walk. You shouldn't be thinking about the food. You said you're on a I diet. Know, so I gotta stop eating.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, Parma, for, for my uh, my prediction. And let me preface it by uh, just reading a couple graphs out of a story out of CNBC. Jamie Dimon, fed up with Zoom calls and remote work, says commuting to offices will make a comeback. So while Jamie Dimon is fine with greater flexibility, allows for employees working from home part-time, that's no substitute for being at the office, the J.P. Morgan chief said. In quotes, "I'm um, I'm about to cancel all my Zoom meetings, Dimon said. I'm done with it. Diamond also said clients told him in cases where J.P. Morgan lost business to rivals, it was because bankers from other guys visited and ours didn't. Well, that's a lesson learned. What's my prediction? My prediction is this uh, feel-good feeling of working from home and flexibility – I have a feeling as we get back into some sort of normalcy, you're going to see people like Jamie Diamond uh, force their employees to come back in the office. And unless you work for a tech company, chances are you're going to be having to schlep into the office and you're going to have to deal with the increasingly bad traffic as we go forward, which could be good news for downtown Miami and Flagler Street renovation, which will take two and a half years, because otherwise there would definitely be nobody to go in any of those uh, few remaining restaurants and shops. That are still standing in downtown miami so with that uh we'll take a commercial break Now we're going to get into the comments this is peter Zeliski of the condo vultures podcast i hope you're enjoying the podcast and i wanted to alert you that if you uh, have a property that you're looking to sell in the tri county south florida area i would encourage you to reach out to jenny Cortes a licensed real estate broker with cvr Realty.com. she's my partner she's been in the business for uh, north of 15 years More importantly, she knows the market. She knows how to get a deal done. And she also realizes that it's more important to get a price that you can accept and sell the property rather than to hold firm on some price that's never going to be achieved and ultimately languish on the market. So if you're looking to do do a deal that you want a skilled expert who can help you sell a property, reach out to Jenny Hortis at 305-865-5859, 305-865-5859, or visit her website, cvrrealty.com. If you're listening to this podcast, think about who else it is. If you want to reach that crowd, which tends to be investors, buyers, developers, lenders, why not advertise on the Condo Vultures podcast? To do so, give us a call at the office, 305-865-5859, 305-865-5859 or send an email to inquiry at condovultures.com. I N Q U I R Y at dot Welcome back to the reporters round table. This is a comment section. This is where uh, we read any and all comments that we've received uh, from you, the listener. If you want to send a comment, send an email to inquire at condo com. I N Q U I R Y at dot All the comments we've received, we read on the air who reads
1: them. John Packler, John, what do we got? We got some very interesting comments from our regular listener, Ilya from the treasure coast. Um, Your starts off, uh, this is regarding to your podcast with Dr. Jones. Dr. uh, Chris Jones, He he's
0: an economist. He's a professor at the University of South Florida. I had a conversation with him about the future of retail space in the state of Florida as well as the country. Uh, The podcast went on for a while, so I broke it up into two parts. The first part ran on uh, last Friday. The second part will run this Friday. And if you were asking about dates, first podcast ran Uh, on the 30th of April. The second one will run on the 7th of May. Go ahead, John.
1: Yeah, he says that he believes, uh, Ilya believes that everything in retail will go online, except nail salons, but perhaps the nail salon will be converted to a mobile nail salon business. Food will be going online, restaurants, deliveries are online. The question here is what is going to happen to the majority of plazas and remaining uh, malls? More Amazon warehouses? Clothes, cars, drugs—everything's going online. That would be nice. I hate staying on, online and waiting for the medicine to be dispersed. Um, and of course, now he moves on to the roundtable. And uh, well, John, if I, I can pause, pause if I could stop you there, John. Yeah, could sure, I'll be there. So,
0: so, so—a little foreshadowing for the podcast that's gonna um, that's gonna run. On the 7th of May, which is Friday, um, I asked Dr. Jones to uh, give us some prediction about what's coming down the pike. And he made a very interesting um, um, uh, comment, at least to me. By his guesstimate, and it was somewhere in the vicinity of 70 to 80 percent of existing retail space in the state of Florida and possibly even the country, is obsolete. So he actually sees a situation where we're not going to be building more retail. We're going to be forced to retrofit retail space. I spoke to him about Lincoln Road Mall, which is a real popular destination. But if anyone has ever been to a shop at Lincoln Road Mall, the spaces are a rectangular shape and they're very deep. And every square footage, uh, uh, every square foot you have, you're paying taxes on, you're paying rent on, you're paying uh, utilities on. So that's not really a winning model anymore. It doesn't make sense in this world. So in this podcast that's going to air on Friday, he's going to get into really some of the dramatic changes that are coming to retail and how, um, uh, you know, landlords are really going to have to sort of figure out if they want to invest more money or if they want to cut bait because money will be needed in order to modernize what is a lot of antiquated space. Go ahead, John.
1: Yeah, um, Also, Ilya commented on our our last roundtable, particularly the $1,100 per square foot for the 11 uh, project. So, uh, you know, I was expecting a comment to come from that uh, interesting story. Um, Ilya asked, do we know what's included? Maybe everything is covered in gold or platinum? Who are the buyers? (laughs) Who are the buyers? There is no good proof since nothing is built yet. Where and how did they advertise? Lovely. Um, He's suggesting that maybe a zero-down requirement for deposits. Sure, he'll sign the contract. (laughs) Peter, maybe you can revisit (laughs) that story a little bit.
0: Well, it just so happens we have the person who wrote the piece uh, Ah. that we discussed last week on here, and that's Catherine. Catherine, without commenting, but can you provide us any feedback into those 340 units or so that sold in sixty days at an average blended rate of eleven hundred dollars a square foot in a market where the average resale price is two three eighty five a foot. Anything you can tell us without commenting? Any insight you can share?
3: From what I was told, it's a ten percent non refundable deposit. So, you know, I don't know. <laughs>
2: wow,
3: that's I wasn't. I wasn't, that's, that's I wasn't to able see, to see you know. the the contract.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Understood. Understood. Okay. Uh, John, you want to make any comment about that? Um,
2: well, I think, I think in Ilya's comment, there's something about having obtained a construction loan yet. And, 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 you know, that, that, that might, might be revealing in, in a way.
1: Yeah. Good point. I agree. Great point. And Ilya has the same, Mr. Backless. Ilya has just one last comment regarding the predictions from last week. And uh, this has to do with Jean was talking about the insurance mess. And Ilya says, um, how will it be fixed? He thinks there's a possibility of federal, state-based insurance, which I thought was intriguing. Is it possible the government government may step in?
2: Well the government the government has stepped in, I mean the state government with citizens insurance and I mean that's kind of the insurer of last resort and they're gonna they're gonna raise they're gonna have to raise rates. Um and and, and you know, if if there's a hurricane, I mean everybody's gonna be assessed. Uh citizens or not, you know. So I mean that it's just the legislature did, did do some fixes, um, particularly on the litigation side, but I mean, look—it's—it's—it's it's, uh, it's a patchwork of, of fixes, and you know, this is the this is the story that never ends. You know, we we—I mean, I don't know. As a reporter, I wrote about Florida's um, uh, property insurance market for like maybe 25 years. I mean, uh, you know, and yeah. it's never been fixed, and I don't think it'll ever be fixed. And, you know, it's just a function of the fact that we're in a uh, hurricane zone, a disaster zone, a flood zone. uh, And and the fact of the matter is, is that to keep the real estate machine going, you got to have affordable homeowner home home insurance. I mean, and so, yeah, there's going to be a state component to it. And until somebody decides they've had enough. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great point. That's a great point. Okay, so
0: with that, um, Catherine, do you want to make a final comment before we uh, shut down this podcast?
3: No, I'm off set.
0: Okay, that's Catherine Kalergis. She's an editor and a reporter over at The Real Deal Miami, breaking a lot of headlines. She's the one who wrote the piece about the uh, 11 condominium and hotel and the pre-sale success they claim to have had. So uh, I want to thank Catherine. Also, to Jean Groose. Jean, do you have any final statements on the way out?
2: I do. You know, um, I I wanted to comment on your remark that people may be starting to come back to the office. Um, But, uh, you know, I've been I've been driving I-95 in the last couple of weeks. And boy, I mean, the traffic is uh, starting to really pick up. And, um, you know, you really got to pick your times uh, to travel I-95 now because it's jammed up. So people are either going back to the office or they're out and about, and uh, I mean, it's it it seems like it feels like um, you know back at the good old days when you used to sit in traffic for hours. It's just the night nightmare road, you know. And we've had it good during COVID because we've had the road to ourselves. Nobody's nobody's been commuting, but now people are commuting again, and boy, it's pretty stressful, I must say. That's for sure. And that's John Gruth. He was a journalist for 25 years, mostly
0: in the state of Florida, including a gig at the Tampa Tribune. Right now he runs a public relations and marketing firm called Groos
1: Communication. Mr. Fackler, do you have any final comments you'd like to make? Yeah, i just, I just like to uh, definitely agree with John. I was out on 95 today. Um, it wasn't even rush hour, and it was jam-packed. I could not believe what I was seeing. So, you know, I mean, so much for um, virtual uh, living here. I don't know what's going on or why so many uh, cars are out there right now, but it's uh, uh it's gridlock again. Uh Mr. Fackler just
0: curious. Um can you compare and contrast your Uber price today maybe
1: one t- uh, versus one time when you went to the doctor during the pandemic? Very good uh, question. Um once again, I got I got jammed up today. Uh, I called me <laughs> <laughs> All, all, all in, round trip it cost me forty bucks back in the day. Okay. Um, back in the day, I could probably, you know, maybe two thirds of that price. So, you know, the the prices are uh, for Uber are have been re- extremely high, um, and I think that's because they've had fewer drivers. So you're really fighting for, you know, fewer drivers out there, and that's that's why they're jamming up the prices. I think that's going to come down now that the drivers that are coming back online. So I think the prices you probably start seeing look, uh, come down. But, boy, I've been getting jammed up lately. So, so, Mr. Fackler, you paid 40 bucks where
0: previously you would pay you would have paid 30 bucks for that round trip. Yes, tops. Yeah. Got it, got it, got it. Okay. And uh, that's John Fackler. Right now he does publications in uh, marketing and consulting related to health and wellness. He used to be a journalist at the uh, software Business Journal where he wrote about white-collar crime and publicly traded companies. Uh, based in South Florida. And I'm Peter Zalewski. I want to remind you, if you're not yet a subscriber to the podcast, please go ahead and do so sure if you're listening to the podcast. If you like what we're doing, leave us a comment and a rating. more comments and ratings we receive, the more likely we are to spread our message and move towards accomplishing our mission, which is bringing straight talk to an overhyped real estate market. And then finally, if you have a comment about anything we've said, send an email to inquiry at condovultures.com. I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y at Until next time, get inoculated. Let's get back to some sort of normalcy so we can catch up uh, soon in person. Take care. Ciao, ciao.